Good morning, everyone. Uh, soon to be good afternoon. Five seconds. Um, U.S. security does not require 1,600 deployed nuclear weapons and a triad of delivery systems, bombers, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and submarine-launched ballistic missiles, a far smaller arsenal deployed entirely on submarines, or a missile-only dyad could achieve the purpose of the U.S. nuclear arsenal, deterring attacks on the United States and its allies, and with considerable savings for taxpayers. Uh, that is the central premise of Cato's project from triad to dyad. This is a research initiative made possible by the generous support of the Plowshares Fund. And at this time, I do want to acknowledge Plowshares for their generous support. It's also instrumental in this event today, several other events we've held here in the city, as, also, as well as a series of events we've done all around the country, about 10 different cities over the past year and a few months. And uh, I just want to say the ability to do this sort of outreach, you know, much of it on a kind of very personal one-on-one -on -one basis, is really rewarding, and it's provided a lot of useful, timely feedback from those who've been able to attend. So uh, thanks to Plowshares. Thanks also to all of you for attending today, um, and for you, those watching on uh, Cato.org. I want to thank my Cato colleagues, especially Travis Evans, uh, and our fine conference staff who do so many things to make these events come off without a hitch. So for the past 18 months or so, uh, my co-authors, uh, Benjamin Friedman and Matt Fay, and I have studied the history of the nuclear triad, examining some of the leading arguments and the end result. But it, I, I want to say it's not really the end result. I'd like to say it's kind of the middle uh, of, a, of a long process. Is this white paper, The End of Overkill, Reassessing U.S. Nuclear Weapons Policy? I should say, The End of Overkill? I'm supposed to do it with a question mark in there. Um, and so we examine this question that we have this diverse array of delivery vehicles for our nuclear weapons dating back to the 50s and 60s. We revisit uh, some of these arguments that were made at the time when the triad developed and then uh, come back and scrutinize them again. Uh, does it make sense today and into the future? Um, copies are available in the lobby and again online for those of you who are watching from afar. Uh, I'm going to stick uh, to my role as moderator today for the most part and let my co-authors do most of the talking. And of course, I'm looking forward to feedback from our distinguished panelists, but I do want to just say one thing on a personal note, and please indulge me. Um, I learned a lot during uh, the research for this paper, much of it driven by Ben Friedman. Um, and this isn't the first time. Ben and I have collaborated on several papers over the years. Uh, and in spite of that, I do it again. Uh, <laughs> He has very high standards, and he is never content with the conventional wisdom. He, um, he scrutinizes everything. And in this case, things that I thought were true weren't. Historical uh, information that I have accepted as fact uh, have been reinterpreted. Some have simply been discarded. And uh, I think this paper, I hope, reflects the kind of top-to-bottom review that is necessary not just of the arsenal itself, its size and its character, but also of the rationales that have sustained it. So I'm honored to, be, to have been involved in this process and to have my name on this paper. One hopes for many things when we publish a paper like this. First of all, you, you hope for it to be noticed. Uh, you, you want it to be of interest, and I think the good turnout today and the turnout we've seen uh, when we have had these discussions elsewhere uh, validates the idea that this is of interest to people. Um, but I also want this research to 
reach those who, like me once, uh, think they know all the answers already. And therefore, there is no reason to consider them in a new light. Um, if you approach this paper with an open mind, I'm confident that you will learn something. And you might even change your mind. So with that, enough for me. Uh, let me introduce our speakers. Uh, our first speaker is Benjamin Friedman, Research Fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies here at the Cato Institute. He's also an adjunct professor at George Washington University, a fine institution. Uh, his areas of expertise include counterterrorism, homeland security, and defense politics. He's authored dozens of op-eds and articles and co is the co-editor of two books, Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It, and U.S. Military Innovation Since the Cold War, Creation Without Destruction. He is a graduate of Dartmouth College and a Ph.D. candidate in political science and an affiliate of the Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Our second speaker today is Matt Fay. He's a PhD student in the History Department at Temple University, also a fine institution, GW undergrad, Temple grad, so there you have it. There, there's, the, there's the connection. Um, he is studying U.S. foreign relations during the Cold War at Temple. His research focuses in particular on nuclear weapons and intelligence policy. He holds degrees in political science and international relations. He is also a former intern and a research assistant here at Cato. He studied nuclear strategy and nuclear proliferation at the uh, inaugural Hertog Global Strategy Initiative at Columbia University. And he recently co-authored an article for the American Historical Review titled, and I love this, General, I have fought just as many nuclear wars as you have. Forecasts, future scenarios, and the politics of Armageddon. Matt is also the co-founder of the international relations blog, Hegemonic Obsessions. <laughs> Uh, our third speaker today is Elbridge Colby. He's a principal analyst and division lead for global strategic affairs at the Center for Naval Analyses, where he focuses on deterrence, nuclear weapons, and related issues. He served as policy advisor to the Secretary of Defense representative for the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, as an expert advisor to the Congressional Strategic Posture Commission, as a staff member of the President's Commission on the Intelligence Capabilities of the U.S. regarding WMD, and with the Coalition Provisional Authority in Baghdad, Iraq, and with the State Department. In addition to his work at CNA, Bridge is affiliated with the Council on Foreign Relations, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and the Washington, D.C. Advisory Committee for the Alexander Hamilton Society. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Yale Law School. And our fourth and final speaker today is Hans Christensen, director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, and co-author of the Nuclear Notebook column in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and the World Nuclear Forces Overview in the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute yearbook. Previously, Hans uh, worked as a consultant to the nuclear program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, directed the Nuclear Strategy Project at the Nautilus Institute, and was a special advisor to the Danish Ministry of Defense. He holds degrees in math and biology. Uh, with that, Ben, take it away. Uh, thanks, uh, Chris, for that uh, very kind way of saying I take forever to finish things. I uh, appreciate that. Uh, compared to uh, most think tank papers, this one is especially historical. We focus not just on the trouble uh, with the arguments uh, for the uh, strategic triad that Chris mentioned, but on their uh, political origins to show that these now reified, I think, uh, these reified arguments were more rationalizations than motivations in the first place, and that they never truly 
made sense uh, and that they've also grown less uh, sensible uh, with time. So the historical uh, part is my part uh, here today. Uh, so if uh, the history uh, bores you, you can uh, take a 10 to 12 minute nap right now uh, and wake up for Matt Fay. Um, the uh, triad's origins uh, were really uh, in the 1950s during the Eisenhower administration. The U.S. defense strategy at the time was to defend allies, especially in Europe, uh, with uh, massive retaliation. The new look, which said that communist attacks uh, would be met with uh, overwhelming uh, nuclear weapons response, which at the time would be delivered by uh, Air Force bombers operated by Strategic Air Command. Uh, and that strategy sought to take advantage of uh, the U.S. nuclear weapons uh, superiority, monopoly, and then superiority to save money. Nukes uh, were thought to be, and I think were, a cheaper alternative to uh, ground forces. You got more bang for the buck. Uh, and massive retaliation was an Air Force-led strategy. Uh, the, the Air Force share of the defense budget uh, approached uh, 50% uh, in the, in the mid-50s under Eisenhower, which was about a 20% relative increase at the expense of the other services. But Missiles were changing things. Um, the uh, big concern uh, at the day of the day was that uh, Soviet ICBM production, the Soviets had the Sputnik test in 1957. In 1955, they tested a thermonuclear bomb. That Soviet uh, ICBM production uh, would allow them to disarm the U.S. arsenal on the ground with a first strike uh, or allow them to credibly threaten to do that uh, and blackmail the United States into sitting on its hands while they walked into Europe. Um, that was essentially the missile gap fear of the uh, late 1950s. And while that gap, like the earlier bomber gap, proved not just wrong but backwards and that there was a gap, was in favor of the United States, um, the gap nonetheless created a large uh, public alarm that induced Eisenhower. The Eisenhower administration spent a lot more on defense and especially uh, ballistic missiles, which each service was working on. So in the 1950s, we have a competition really uh, between all three services, uh, which uh, ends in uh, two, pro two programs that become sort of the mainstays of the arsenal. The Navy's uh, Polaris submarine launch ballistic missile, uh, which was deployed at the end of the Eisenhower administration, and the Air Force's Minuteman uh, ICBM, which became operational uh, shortly thereafter. And the Army just gets uh, pushed aside, basically. Um, with Polaris, uh, the Navy, uh, which was eager to win back relevance and budget in the Cold War, uh, argued that they were a far more economical kind of uh, nuclear delivery uh, than ICBMs or bombers because the invulnerability of submarines uh, meant you didn't need to buy more just because uh, the enemy bought more, that you could uh, satisfy. Uh, the Air Force uh, had tried to kill uh, and then control uh, Polaris, but they sort of grudgingly had to accept it. And that meant they needed a rationale for um, keeping uh, ICBMs and uh, bombers in the force. And they found it uh, in the work uh, analysts uh, at the RAND Corporation had been doing. Um, and and that, that argument was that even if you solve the survivability problem with submarines or whatever, um, the Soviet arsenal arguably threatened the U.S. defense of Europe, uh, what is called uh, extended deterrence in that Jargon, because once you're in a situation of mutually assured destruction, of mad, a threat of nuclear retaliation to defend Europe was suicidal. And if it's suicidal, it's not rational, and therefore it's not credible, and therefore it does not deter. Uh, so nukes sort of checkmate each other in, in mad, is the, is the argument, and uh, allow the Soviets, who were thought to be conventionally uh, superior, to, superior to the U.S. and NATO, uh, to invade Germany or, or uh, whatever they wanted to invade. So um, RAND's solution 
was uh, a disarming first strike against uh, enemy forces, preemption, uh, but leaving their cities unharmed. And that was called the counterforce no cities doctrine. Counterforce means attacking their forces. No city means uh, not attacking their cities at the outset. Um, by, not, by hitting Soviet forces, the idea was you limit the damage they can uh, inflict when they shoot back uh, so that a non-crazy person uh, might be able to accept that amount of limited damage. And by leaving their cities unharmed, you made the cities hostages that encouraged restraint amid a war, uh, either halting it or at least sparing U.S. cities. So all this was designed to make this threat, uh, this deterrent threat to defend Europe, credible uh, in the face of uh, enemy nukes. And to the Air Force, at least, the doctrine had the virtue of carving out a niche for its delivery systems. ICBMs, uh, they argued, uh, would have the accuracy and reliability to uh, target most Soviet missile silos. Uh, so around 1960, really, only then does the Air Force sort of start saying, hey, we, we should optimize the accuracy of uh, ICBMs so that they can do uh, this mission and be different from SLBMs, from submarine-launched ballistic missiles. Bombers were uh, said to carry warheads powerful and accurate enough to destroy especially hard silos or deeply buried targets. And because uh, uh, SLBMs, because the subs were essentially invulnerable to attack but said to be relatively inaccurate, uh, they were thought to be perfect for holding in reserve uh, to do the no cities bit, to threaten Soviet cities, uh, a task that required less accuracy. Uh, upon taking office, the Kennedy administration quickly embraced this strategy, counterforce no cities, for several reasons. One, uh, JFK had blasted Eisenhower in his campaign for letting the country fall behind in the Cold War for the missile gap and for uh, the massive retaliation strategy. So there was a need for a replacement doctrine. Second, uh, the administration, especially uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, had hired a bunch of RAND scholars who'd worked on the development of this doctrine, so sort of a natural that they would take it up in office. And third, it would have been a brutal fight uh, on the Hill to, for the administration had they been inclined to uh, kill a triad leg. Uh, so it sort of became theirs. It became their policy, and therefore they needed a story to tell about it in budget documents and congressional hearings. Fourth, finally, the strategy was a way to keep West Germany from going nuclear. Uh, a prospect that alarmed the Soviets so much that they sort of sparked the Berlin crisis as a way to pressure NATO and the United States to get the Germans not to do this. And one way to help settle the crisis was to uh, keep the U.S. umbrella uh, over Germany, the security umbrella. And uh, that required a story that said, uh, don't worry, we'll defend you. We have a credible way to do that. And of course, that's what this story was designed to do. So the Germans, the allies, were a big reason for this. The trouble with uh, counterforce, though, with this strategy, was it has no upper limits. As the Soviets build more missiles, you have to build more and more of your own. Uh, if they're afraid of vulnerability, they build more, so you need more first strike forces, and you have an arms race. McNamara uh, realized pretty quickly that an attempt at a disarming first strike, therefore, was sort of a boon uh, to the Air Force. They'd get a growing share of GDP. Um, so uh, within a few years, he banned counterforce as an official uh, requirements driver in the Pentagon. The new rationale, the replacement, was uh, survivability, assured destruction. That meant uh, each leg of the triad needed the ability to destroy enough of the USSR to dissuade its leaders uh, from fighting. So now uh, the arsenal uh, was no longer meant to get us out of mutually assured destruction, like the counterforce no cities doctrine was. It was meant... Uh, rhetorically, at least, to keep us in it, to keep us in MAD. Um, and um, conveniently, uh, that wound up the survivability rationale, basically justifying the force that McNamara was already planning to buy. 
So this sort of bureaucratic trick uh, became sort of the uh, standard public rationale used by defense officials to this day to describe our arsenal's purpose in that. Um, but uh, the trouble was um, the embrace of survivability did not much change uh, weapons design. The military, especially the Air Force, continued to push in design, in warhead design, and in the accuracy of the missiles for counterforce capability. So they weren't doing, uh, let's just hit the city's survivability, second strike stuff. They were still doing first strike. Meanwhile, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations did little to change uh, the PSYOP, which was the plan for using nukes, the targeting, um, to implement either uh, counterforce no cities or MAD when they, or survivability when they embraced that. It, it, the plan remained essentially indiscriminate, massive retaliation. So in a sense, the pursuit of um, MAD or survivability was always just a public story that covered the uh, preemption counterforce story. But even that story uh, wasn't completely real because for the, the duration of the Cold War, the United States never really invested enough in missiles of either sort uh, that we had a real uh, credible first strike. And we never adopted the civil defense measures that would have heightened our ability to survive, to survive if the Soviets uh, had a little bit to shoot back after our first strike. So we weren't really fully committed to it. So the military could sort of try for counterforce, but only within fiscal and political limits. Um, so arguably, that was sort of a bluff. We were just sort of trying to convince the Soviets that uh, not so much that we had a totally credible first strike, uh, but that we were crazy enough to believe that we did uh, so that uh, they couldn't safely uh, start um, uh, invading. Uh, so deterrence uh, just required a story that you could sort of tell with enough of a straight face to keep them from uh, acting, going forward, invading, uh, keep them out of Berlin. It was a bit of a bluff. Um, so what we wound up with, and essentially still have, was an underfunded first strike or counterforce force built around a triad justified uh, by a second strike survivability story. Underfunded uh, counterforce force in the sense that if you were really doing this against the enemy, you'd actually want more. Um, and that circumstance remained because it fulfilled lasting political needs. And uh, after the uh, 1960s, the uh, Air Force and the uh, Navy reduced their uh, competition uh, and sort of embraced um, the triad together, locked arms. So um, we had this circumstance where there wasn't much scrutiny about uh, the triad and the arguments uh, behind it. And I'm going to leave a lot of that uh, to Matt to discuss, but let me just make a, a couple points. One sort of myth that survived was that the arsenal was indeed for survivability, uh, for a second strike, and that was constantly in doubt. It wasn't, uh, and uh, it was pretty safe throughout the Cold War. There's lots of studies now that will show you that, and Matt will talk more about that. Second, submarines, uh, U.S. Uh, boomer submarines, developed better uh, counterforce capability by the end of the Cold War than ICBM. So the original division of labor that the triad was based on in the counterforce no cities story fell apart quickly, but nobody pointed that out, not even the Navy, they didn't even point out how accurate their missiles were because they were cooperating, in a sense, with the uh, Air Force. And third, and most important, the problem our force was meant to solve, the difficulty of deterring a Soviet invasion of Europe, was wildly exaggerated, particularly after 1963. People in the 1960s, like George Kennan and Bernard Brody, had pointed out the Soviet Union didn't seem greatly interested uh, in conquering much of Western Europe. Uh, they were opportunistic and e eager to spread communism, but not at the cost of another uh, world War. And especially today with Soviet, uh, some Soviet archives open, we know that Soviet leaders were very deterred 
even by the prospect of conventional war. And they weren't uh, planning an invasion of Western Europe, except in response to being uh, attacked. And as analysts at the time uh, pointed out, uh, the conventional balance in Europe was much more favorable to NATO uh, during the Cold War than you uh, often hear uh, today. And finally, the Soviet leaders didn't think about deterrence like Rand analysts. They saw war as something uh, inherently uncertain and unmanageable that therefore uh, tended to escalate beyond its original stakes. So they were deterred, I think, regardless of what posture uh, we adopted. And whatever they said, U.S. leaders during the Cold War behaved as if they agreed. Uh, in the early Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis and so forth, when the United States had a better chance uh, than certainly later at executing a successful first strike, uh, we didn't feel able to coerce the Soviets without diplomatic concessions, uh, let alone shoot first. Uh, U.S. leaders in Vietnam, during Vietnam, feared that, that if we escalated the war, that it could lead to uh, uh, nuclear war. So we behaved as if uh, uh, deterrence was quite robust. So there was sort of a Cold War irony that both sides were so restrained that they had avoided it, admitting it for fear of emboldening the other. So to finish up, both sides of the U.S. debate about nuclear arsenals where hardliners uh, insisted that counterforce capabilities were necessary to preserve the peace, while arms controllers argued that uh, those steps pushed the doomsday clock closer to midnight. Both sides shared the misconception that peace was a result of what uh, Albert Wolstetter called a delicate balance of terror. It wasn't that delicate. Uh, that obscured the robustness of the peace created by the memory of war, which nukes just made more horrible. Uh, and what was being debated really was the appropriate form or amount of insurance uh, to buy for that remote disaster. I think that's worth discussing, but um, the uh, exact amount is unlikely to matter that much. Uh, and the arsenals, to finish, the arsenal's survivability was never truly in doubt. Counterforce was overkill when it came to achieving extended deterrence. In any case, the triad was not necessary for counterforce. Subs could do that. Over to Matt. So you guys are on your, you guys are on your best behavior there. So. I, I think I've got this time. All right. I think. All right. Uh, well, I want to say thank, uh, thank Chris for the warm welcome. Um, and uh, as Chris mentioned, I am a former Cato intern, so it's a little bit weird standing up here. I'm more used to being out in the audience with a uh, microphone, <laughs> holding a microphone for Q and A's during these things. Uh, but it's great to be back here at uh, Cato, and I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, Chris and Ben for bringing me in on this project with them. And to echo uh, Chris's thoughts about Ben uh, really being the driving force behind this and uh, to thank him for his work. It's, it's a real privilege to be able to, to be on this panel today, um, especially with uh, Dr. Christensen and Mr. Colby. And basically one of the things, or several uh, of the things we wanted to address with uh, this paper were what we saw as uh, myths about uh, American nuclear strategy as Ben was just going over. Now, most of us agree that nuclear weapons are qualitatively different. Uh, their destructive power and, to a lesser extent, the speed with which they can be delivered certainly changed uh, risk calculus uh, by which states uh, pursue their political goals. But many people seem to have come to the conclusion that they are so diff uh, different that political context in which they exist no longer matters. Uh, two recent examples highlight this kind of distorted thinking about nuclear weapons. Uh, first, um, discussing a talk this summer by the top nuclear advisor to the Air Force Chief of Staff, one analyst wrote that because America's nuclear arsenal has been on daily alert for nearly 70 years now, this means that, and I quote, nuclear weapons are used every day to keep the peace. More recently, a former vice commander to the Air Force's um, 509th Bomb Wing 
wrote in the Washington Post that it was the nuclear triad itself, not necessarily the destructive force of the warheads it delivers, that deterred a Soviet attack for the four plus decades of the Cold War. Now, I bring these examples up uh, because they seem to reflect common assumptions that strip any con political context from the past seven decades of the nuclear age. Uh, Frank Gavin from the LBJ School at the University of Texas has a new book out uh, examining American, uh, the history of American nuclear strategy and the role of nuclear weapons in international politics. And in his book, he argues that these types of misconceptions uh, come about from two factors. Uh, one, the conflation of the history of nuclear weapons with the history of the Cold War. And two, the very public debate that took place during the Cold War between theorists, military leaders, and civilian policymakers about what was required for deterrence. Now, whether it was Albert Wollstetter's delicate, delicate balance of terror that Ben just mentioned, Robert McNamara's formula that we needed to threaten to destroy 50% of Soviet industrial capacity and 25% of its population to deter them, or the controversy over the uh, so-called window of vulnerability in the 1970s, there was rarely agreement over what exactly it would take to deter the Soviets. But because the superpowers failed to obliterate one another, many people have now come to, to take at face value that we've somehow arrived at some sort of optimal and apparently permanent deterrent strategy. And that's enshrined in the nuclear triad and operative at all times, even absent the particular political circumstances of the Cold War. Now, as Ben has already touched on, during the Cold War, American nuclear strategy called for nuclear superiority and counterforce strategy. It did so because of two factors, perception of Soviet conventional superiority in Europe and the difficulty of defending West Berlin. Now, today, we don't live in fear of a surprise attack by a conventionally superior adversary because no adversary analogous to the Soviet Union exists. And today, we don't have to worry about defending an indefensible city deep inside an adversary's territory because there is no geopolitical anomaly analogous to Berlin. But despite these changed circumstances, U.S. nuclear strategy continues to call for what the Pentagon's recent nuclear employment guidelines terms significant counterforce capabilities. Unfortunately, the employment strategy mostly avoids explaining why this strategy remains necessary. And it entirely avoids explaining why such a strategy requires a triad of nuclear delivery systems. But even if we accept that counterforce is still necessary for deterrence, the summary mana we propose would be sufficient. The Trident D5 SLBM is accurate enough to hit nearly any target on Earth and carries enough payload to destroy hard and buried targets. Now, the main challenge, of course, for, for counterforce missions is destroying mobile missiles. As we know, uh, Russia is currently planning on deploying a new mobile ICBM. China has deployed mobile ICBMs and has provided uh, mobile launch platforms to North Korea, though, according to the Chinese, uh, those trucks are for transporting lumber, not missiles. <laughs> But the difficulty with mobile missiles stems from locating them, not destroying them. Once located, they're vulnerable and can be destroyed by conventional means. More importantly than the counterforce mission, a submarine monad that we propose provides the secure second strike capability on which deterrence is founded. No state currently uh, threatens the U.S. Navy's Ohio-class submarines. Um, in one of the early responses to our paper, uh, one analyst said that he feared a, quote, magic key. Uh, basically saying that he feared the development of a new type of anti-submarine warfare that could threaten the SSBN force. Now, personally, I tend to think that if we're, if, if the, we're doing okay if the counter-argument to our proposal relies on magic. But more importantly, this type of argument about advances in ASW capability is not new. 
Analysts have wrongly predicted the impending vulnerability of SSBNs for decades. At the end of the Cold War, though, the General Accounting Office found the U.S. subs had been even less vulnerable than previously believed. This came at a time when the United States faced an adversary who was relatively motivated to undermine our second strike capability. Again, today, such an adversary really isn't, isn't present. And any potential adversary who could develop the type of advanced ASW capabilities we're talking about here would still have to conduct a first strike on those subs in port on maintenance and track down the eight to nine subs at sea at any given time. And it would have to do so with the confidence that it destroyed them all. Now, the Obama administration itself has avoided discussing the triad on these strategic terms, except in a very vague manner. It makes its case for maintaining the triad on technical grounds. <clears throat> According to the nuclear posture review that came out in 2010, the administration plans to maintain the triad to guard against the possibility of a technical failure that could affect an entire leg. But for a technical failure to affect the sea leg, it would mean a failure would have to take place in each individual Ohio-class submarine simultaneously to affect our, our second strike capability. And as I already mentioned in regards to an adversary developing advanced ASW capability, a technical, that would mean a technical failure would have to occur on the three to four subs in port and the eight to nine subs at sea simultaneously. Now, credit where it's due, I think Ben put this perfectly in our paper when he wrote that arguments that a submarine-based monad would put all our nuclear eggs in a single basket are simply wrong. Puts in them in at least 12 stealthy, mobile, and well-tested baskets. More importantly, though, even if the type of catastrophic technical failure the nuclear posture review envisions were to happen, for it to cause a deterrence failure, an adversary would have to know about it in advance and have been planning a first strike for some time. So we need to ask, for the foreseeable future, what political goal are any of our adversaries seeking that they would be, have them planning to conduct such a first strike at a moment's notice? And in a sense, that kind of brings us full circle. It hasn't really been nuclear weapons or the triad that maintain great power peace every day for the last 70 years, because that type of thinking assumes that there was somebody planning on violating that peace every day for the past 70 years. Now, should that situation change? And should an adversary begin to con contemplate such an attack, a submarine monad possesses the secure second strike capability that would make even the most aggressive adversary think twice. We've been reducing our nuclear arsenal since the end of the Cold War, and we continue to do so. More importantly, as the Pentagon searches for savings in the current fiscal environment, the nuclear triad should be the first place it looks. Thank you, and I will turn it over to Mr. Goldie. <clears throat> Um, great. Well, thank you very much. It's a real, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks to Chris, Ben, Matt, and to Cato uh, for hosting me for this important discussion, especially as the, uh, the, the dissenter from the, uh, the, the general point of view. And it's also great to see a number of friends and colleagues in the audience. Uh, uh, thanks for making the trek either, either on my behalf or on, on, on behalf of the whole panel. Ben asked me to offer my general reactions to this report rather than to delve too much into the nitty gritty. I'm also going to focus more on the contemporary and future implications of, of their arguments rather than on the fascinating and important uh, historical arguments. Before doing so, though, I'd like to say that although I disagree with most of this report's central points, I found it to be one of the most informed and intellectually potent and coherent efforts I've seen along these lines in some time. Uh, so congratulations to the authors and to Cato for putting out a piece of work that needs to be taken seriously by all of those interested in these issues, including its opponents. Now, this is a report that argues that the United States can rather significantly reduce its nuclear forces. Others, and I number myself in this category, feel that this would be imprudent or even outright dangerous. 
So how should we decide what nuclear forces we need? Which of us is right? I think it's fair to say that we should look at this question as we might look at determining how much and what type of insurance we should buy. And I was glad to see that Ben used a similar metaphor. Nuclear weapons, like an insurance policy, are not weapons that we are likely to need right away or for common contingencies. Rather, they are capabilities that we maintain to ward off and, if necessary, to deal with more extreme scenarios, scenarios that are less likely, but that would be crippling or catastrophic if they struck us unprepared. Now, when you're buying insurance, you consider the scale and the probability of the risks that you are insuring against, and you match those judgments to the kind and amount of insurance to buy. And you weigh those benefits against the cost of the insurance, also taking into account the externalities of the insurance policy, positive as well as negative. If you overinsure, you waste resources that could be used productively elsewhere. If you underinsure, you run the risk of being unprepared when disaster strikes. So let's chalk up the pros and cons of our nuclear forces. The authors and I agree that a nuclear force of some kind is necessary, or at least a prudent safeguard, which is why they support a monad of ballistic missile submarines. But they are confident that we could get rid of not only two legs of the triad, but also any kind of counterforce capability in the US nuclear force without doing any appreciable damage to our important interests. In other words, they are prepared to buy a smaller and much less diversified insurance portfolio. I am not. The reason why, I think, has to do with my assessment that the world may be a riskier place than the authors judge, and that the costs of keeping a large and diversified nuclear force are well worth their relatively modest costs in light of the plausible benefits. Now, let me explain to you why I think my view is the one that the American people and their elected representatives should support. The first reason is that I think that the authors significantly underestimate the dangers, especially the latent dangers, in our security environment and thus mistakenly discount the value of having a stronger nuclear force. Indeed, what struck me most of all about this report is its sanguinity. Pervasive throughout the study is the distinct sense that the strategic environment that the United States should care about is not only safe and stable, and much more safe and stable than many of us think, but is also enduringly so. For the authors, it appears that security is easily gotten and maintained, and that the dangers of war, coercion, and instability are minimal. Military technological surprise is unlikely and can be effectively and affordably weathered even if it happens. The supposed dangers of the past were exaggerated and even manufactured, largely by military organizations for their own benefit, and the perils of the future are even more modest. To wit, let me give you a few representative selections from the study. Quote, the stories used to justify our military posture year after year exaggerate the precariousness of great power peace and the difficulty of deterring aggression or extended deterrence was far easier than generally claimed, or nuclear weapons are essentially irrelevant in actual US wars. Now, let me be clear that I'm not one of those who says that we live in an especially dangerous world today. Quite the contrary, I think this is patently untrue. My sense is that we actually have been safer since 1991 than during any time since before the First World War. I think many of the military interventions undertaken in the last decade and a half have been mistakes, and I think that big chunks of the foreign policy commentariat do exaggerate the threats that we face, particularly from rogue states and insurgents. Great power politics today are relatively muted, and the possibility of major war appears remote. And I agree with the authors that there is a good deal about this piece that derives from sources other than our military strength. But I think the author, study authors go way too far in their sanguinity. Namely, I find their high confidence in the inherently peaceful nature of the international environment unfounded, and in particular, their confidence that this preponderance of factors pointing towards peace and security 
is enduring and highly resilient. This is especially important because when we think about decisions about the triad, we must think in terms of decades and even half centuries, since this is the planning horizon for these decisions. I certainly see the pacifying effects of commerce, ideology, and so forth, but I also look at the world and I see still present the factors that have driven aggression, coercion, and war in the past. I see that the practice of power politics is by no means dead. I see bitter hatreds, resentments, envies, and revanchist ambitions. I see highly sophisticated and modernizing military establishments and proliferating weapons technologies. Moreover, I see the continuing temptations, tendencies, and structural incentives to war aggression and coercion. And I see these factors, all these factors, not just among the marginal, the North Koreas and the Irans, but also among the strong and cutting edge, the Chinas and the Russias. And I do not see these factors disappearing. So I see the present peace is more precarious than the authors do. And so I worry a lot more than they do about the future. I therefore see a much greater role for and value in US military power, and ultimately in our nuclear forces, in forestalling such eventualities. So I'm inclined to be conservative and to follow the old rule of thumb. If you would seek to prevent war, prepare for it. But of course, I don't know that major war is still plausible, or that our nuclear forces effectively deter or would dampen it, or that they protect us from coercion, or that they dissuade adversaries from investing more in their military capabilities. With apologies to any true believing social scientists out there, I think these things are true, but of course, either, neither I nor anyone else can prove any of our assessments on these questions. And so I must concede that it's possible that people like John Mueller are right, that humanity has moved past major war, and that military might and effective deterrence are no longer necessary for peace and stability. So how should we adjudicate this dispute between those who think like the authors and those who think like me? Well, since we disagree about the benefits of our nuclear force, the authors think they're negligible, I think they're substantial and perhaps determinative, then I think the fairest way is like looking at an insurance policy to look at the costs, and not only the cost of the insurance policy itself, but the cost of being wrong. Now, the authors are not nuclear abolitionists, so we're not talking about a gigantic bet right off the bat, but they are talking about dramatically transforming the US nuclear posture, removing its visible signaling legs, its ability to attack targets with discrimination, its flexibility, its redundancy, and so forth. I can get into the details of why I think these are important, if you like, in the Q&A. And the logic that motivates them to make these cuts presumably wouldn't be limited to this step. We would have to imagine that it would lead to a fundamental and long-lasting change in how the US viewed its nuclear and presumably other military requirements. The upside they see is savings in money. According to the report, approximately $20 billion a year, according to their calculations. Now, it's interesting and important to note here, parenthetically, that they don't see our nuclear forces as, as a destabilizing, destabilizing irritant to peace, and I, I think they're consistent in that. Thus, they don't argue that a benefit of disarmament would be to remove such an ir irritation, as many doves do. So we'll leave that point aside. So those are the benefits of their cost of, of a course of action. But what if the authors are wrong and it is I who am closer to being right? What if they are actually underestimating how delicate and potentially dangerous the international environment is? If they are wrong, then a weakening of our nuclear deterrent would run the risk that countries ranging from North Korea and Iran to China and Russia would see a diminution in our nuclear capability as opening up areas of possible military advantage, and not just advantages in an actual shooting war, but in the ability to credibly threaten military force for political advantage, which itself can, of course, lead to war. I'm glad that Matt mentioned Frank Gavin, because I think Frank had a very, very good article last year critiquing Ken Waltz on this point and using some of the history of the Cold War to show how political competition, strategic competition exists even under the nuclear shadow. Moreover, their steps would run the risk of, of allies and fence sitters acting in ways that contribute to international instability 
or even a more hostile environment, for instance, by bandwagoning with or kowtowing to U.S. rivals or sparking arms races. At worst, the author's proposed build-down could mean emboldened adversaries, unnerved allies, instability, and a greater likelihood of war. I said at worst. And in the event of war, it could mean that the United States would be left weaker and with fewer options for the effective application for its military forces, because make no mistake, they are talking about removing significant elements of the capability in the U.S. nuclear force, leaving us worse off in the ability to resolve such conflicts or stand firm in tense face-offs with significant implications for our interests. Now, the authors seem to doubt that such scenarios are realistic, and obviously I can't prove they are plausible again. But I would simply remind you that geopolitical rivalry is indisputably alive and well in places like the Middle East, South Asia, and the Western Pacific, the countries like China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, as well as allies like Poland, South Korea, and Japan have significant military armament programs underway, and the tensions and even hatreds are rife in many of these places. More broadly, I'd simply remind you that it was only 25 years ago that the two largest military blocs in world history faced off across the inner German border, armed to the teeth with every weapon imaginable, including thermonuclear ones, and that it was in the lifetimes of some of you that the world undertook the largest war in human history. Are we so different from our parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents? It doesn't seem so to me. Have we so clearly evolved that such dynamics could not reemerge? These points suggest to me that, at the very least, my fears are not fanciful. So the downside risks that the authors are wrong are serious and potentially severe and even catastrophic in consequence. But to me, the author's argument really falls apart when we consider the costs involved in maintaining a larger nuclear force. Now, if the cost of the resilience, redundancy, flexibility, signaling capability, and stability afforded by the Air Force legs of the triad were exorbitant, uh, we might quite reasonably focus on economizing on them. But the fact is that these costs are, certainly in relative terms, actually quite modest. The authors themselves claim that the total spent by the Department of Defense on nuclear forces is $23 billion a year. And I note uh, that the Pentagon has strenuously asserted that the number is more like $16 billion or below. Or their estimate is that it's about $31 billion with the energy labs, the, the author's estimate. Now, first, let's put this in perspective. Even the author's estimate constitutes something in the ballpark of 3 to 4% of the total defense budget. And this includes the SSBN, which is by far the most expensive leg of the triad, but which the authors very sensibly advocate retaining. Even factoring in the energy spending on the weapons themselves, nuclear weapons today all in probably cost something in the vicinity of 5% of the total defense budget writ large. Nor is this a temporary dip. The sources I've found indicate that overall spending on U.S. nuclear forces has been below 5% since the end of the Cold War and under 10% of the defense budget since the early 1960s, with a brief exception during the Reagan buildup. And more to the point, this ratio is expected to stay at or around 5% or below, even as the U.S. begins ramping up spending to recapitalize its nuclear forces in the latter part of this decade. And of course, the big hump in the spending will be on the SSBN, again, sensibly. So we're talking about a quite small fraction of our nation's overall spending on defense. And of course, the costs of the Air Force legs are only a portion of this total spending. These costs would be relatively modest, even if the authors were right that we would save 20 billion of their 31 billion by getting rid of the two Air Force legs. I must confess, though, that I am mystified by how they get $20 billion of savings by cutting the two less expensive legs. I'm definitely not an accountant, but I'm confused, given that it is the boomer that is the most expensive part. Even taking their figure, though, we're still only talking about 2% of the defense budget. Now, that's pretty modest. Of course, I should emphasize, especially here at Cato, that the government should never be profligate with the people's money. But I think it's hardly profligate to buy the extra measure of safety afforded by the Air Force legs at a reasonable price. Now, I should note, again, parenthetically and quickly, that the authors respond at one point late in the study 
that we could always build back up the air, two Air Force legs of the triad if circumstances deteriorate in the international environment or technical problems arose. But while this is certainly plausible and possible, I think we must acknowledge not simply that this would be very difficult, but that it would be expensive and indubitably tremendously more expensive than maintaining and modernizing our forces. It's a rule of thumb that maintaining, generally speaking, is cheaper than re recapitalizing. So I think we should only consider this as a very low probability option and not as a real planning option. In closing, I think that a fair balancing of the costs and benefits of getting rid of the triad should lead the American people and their representatives to favor its conservation. As is probably clear to you, I would be prepared to pay a lot more for the benefits afforded by the triad. I think the redundancy, flexibility, signaling, and other attributes offered by the Air Force's nuclear legs are worth a lot of our hard-earned dollars. But the fact is that, in relative terms, the triad just doesn't cost that much. So that's not the argument that we need to be having. Rather, the question is whether we should keep a set of capabilities that plausibly have helped, help, and will help deter war, aggression, and coercion against ourselves, our interests, and will do so for a quite modest price. To me, that's a no-brainer. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris, and also thanks for the invitation to come over here. And, uh, and certainly thanks uh, to the authors uh, for writing a fascinating uh, study. Um, I don't have a prepared speech, but I have some notes scribbled down on a piece of paper, and I'll try to make sense of them. Uh, but <laughs> so many interesting things have been said already, and I think... Uh, you know, it could be interesting to incorporate many of them into some um, some further thinking about um, where this issue is heading. I think one of the first things that's, that, that struck me when I read the report was, um, it, it, in a refreshing way, it cuts through the crap, so to speak, um, to speak my French. But we, every time we have these reviews, um, uh, you know, it's it's an argument between two sides, one that says, we need to cut and we can do with less on the other side that says, no, we can't. We have to be very careful. The world is dangerous and suppose things happen, et cetera, et cetera. And every single time we come out and conclude we can do with less. We've now done this exercise three, th three times uh, during uh, the post-Cold War period. And we'll do it again. Um, the next review, perhaps in when the next administration comes in, um, will be another review. And that re review, I predict, will almost certainly decide that we can do with uh, fewer nuclear forces. Um, so the question is, um, why do we do this? <laughs> it's, it's every time, every step of the way. And of course, part of the reason is that it's a precarious issue uh, with a lot of risks, but also a lot of constituencies that are involved in beating each other up on their different interests. Um, you know, um, and unfortunately, uh, one of the arguments, of course, you use in the report is this issue of, or the one of the words you use a lot in the report and we hear in the debate all the time is deterrence. And it's hard to find a, war that, uh, a word that's more misused or stretched <laughs> or beaten up or represented or misrepresented, depending on who you are, because um, you can really use this for uh, pretty much any argument you want to make. Um, and so one of, the, one of the big disconnects I find in the public debate is that uh, outside, so to speak, the inner circles uh, of the nuclear planning and nuclear policy development communities, we talk about um, deterrence and we assess the need for nuclear forces based on sort of a gut feeling, if you will, about how much um, is necessary to scare anyone 
reasonably thinking, thinking human being, being or country. Um, and if you have something like that, well, surely it must be enough. Um, and so we have a very simple kind of debate that we can do with this, uh, we could do a little less, maybe a thousand, no, like 1,500, maybe, whatever. I mean, these are the kind of sort of very old, uh, overall uh, simplistic concept that we can throw out and debate, of course. But inside, uh, the, the discussion is different because, of course, debate uh, deterrence is the starting point. But more of the work uh, traditionally has been about what happens when deterrence fails? What then? What do you do then? And then it becomes this enormous package of assumptions, interpretations of the president's uh, words, um, uh, interpretation of how to translate that into strike options, missions against this kind of scenario, this type of scenario, which again uh, translates into force structure requirements, you know, number of warheads, different types of deliveries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so now we've just had a new strategic review by a president or by an administration that came in with a vibrant speech in Prague saying that it was aiming to put an end to Cold War thinking. Uh, it was a key phrase from that speech. Um, and just like disarmament, it may not be something that um, is, is reached in uh, this president's lifetime. Um, but putting it into Cold War thinking, uh, in my view, means more than just slicing a little off the edges of the posture, uh, fiddling with the margins. Uh, putting it into Cold War thinking requires reaching deep into the core mission of nuclear weapons against the large adversaries. Um, and the triad really doesn't matter at all for regional scenarios involving countries like uh, North Korea and, China, uh, North Korea and, and, uh, and Iran, or Syria for that matter. Um, but it still matters a lot uh, for the way th uh, planners think about the mission and the interpretation of uh, the presidential guidance in scenarios involving Russia and China, simply because we really haven't changed our nuclear, um, the fundamentals of our nuclear planning that much uh, since the Cold War. It's many of the same drivers uh, underpinned by the counterforce uh, strategy, I think that still requires uh, very high requirements for the nuclear force structure, very di many different ways of executing strikes, many different kinds of scenarios against different types of adversaries, et cetera. Um, and there is this sort of joke that I think uh, U.S. strategic commanders always make um, when they leave the command, which is that, you know, uh, for example, uh, one of them from 2004, he said that, um, you know, the presidential guidance to me was about you know, one and a half page. But after the Department of Defense and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were finished interpreting what the president meant to say, it was 26 pages. <clears throat> and, and so there is a lot of interpretation at all of these levels. So what's really hard is to talk about deterrence uh, when the real debate is about how do you um, translate deterrence into the craftsmanship, which is what the warfighters and their planning is about. Um, there is a disconnect, I think, uh, still a deep disconnect in the public debate about those two communities, which means we sometimes talk past each other. Um, so from outside, it seems very reasonable, I think, um, that you can certainly go to a, um, a monad um, that's relying on the most secure and 
pretty darn capable uh, platform we have. Um, and by the way, the Brits have already gone there, the French have already gone there, almost, they're almost uh, getting rid of uh, air-delivered systems. But um, on the other hand, if we move in this direction, you have a NATO that will go entirely at sea. Um, whereas in Russia and in China, you have the very opposite. You have four structures, nuclear four structures that are very focused on their huge landmass, uh, staying in there, hiding to the best extent they can. Um, there, they have, of course, sea-based systems as well, but it's not a focus, it's not a priority. Um, and so there is something to think about here in terms of if we move to a monad, then it was only sea-based systems. How is that force going to interact um, with um, shaping strategic stability with Russia and China uh, in the decades ahead? And how is such a force going to affect our um, uh, extended deterrence commitments to uh, allies, both in Asia, but also, uh, but also in NATO. It is, seems to me, very hard to signal with ballistic missile submarines. Um, yes, the few times we've tried to do that, or the one time we've tried to do that, there might be two, but the, at least the one time we, we did that was back in the 1960s after we, we pulled the, the missiles out of Turkey. Um, one of our submarines appeared in one of the Turkish ports, and supposedly a clear signal, we're here, we can do what we have to do, et cetera, et cetera. Since then, we haven't done that. And I think the only cases where we can say there might have been such an attempt, but it's not clear the reasons for it, were in the late 1970s and early 1980s, where a string of US ballistic missile submarines suddenly began to appear in South Korean ports, um, several per year. Um, it wasn't explicitly communicated in the public that this was some form of uh, uh, nuclear umbrella signal or, or something like that, but um, it might have been. But that's just to say, um, how would we use a ballistic missile submarine force to, to signal in the variety uh, of scenarios that might involve uh, uh, allies? Um, I noticed that in your report, um, there is a little remark and the end of it that talks about even if we do not think that a monad based on the ballistic submarine exclusively is um, fulfilling necessarily all the means, you could have a very small capability, air-delivered capability in terms of uh, cruise missiles and bombs uh, that could be stored on land uh, and be activated if necessary. And of course, to me at least, I read that as somewhat of a reflection of there might be scenarios in which at a much lower level and a much more visible level, you would need to be able to, to signal in a war. Um, let's see if I missed a couple of things here. Um, I just want to say that I think your, what strikes me also is your confidence in this ballistic missile submarine force. Um, a couple of years ago, I had a conversation with one of the uh, commanders out of Stratcom, and I, I asked him, and it was in the upstart of the, 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 uh, the Obama administration's nuclear posture review and all that, and I said, you know, if you had to choose between the legs and the triad, which one would you, which one would you focus on? Which one would you want the most? And he thought for a, a moment, and then he said to me, you know, a few years ago, I would have said the submarines, but now I'm not so sure. And what the reason for, for his, his hesitation was, uh, he said they are subject, potentially subject to attrition. It's not the fact that you have to hunt down every single ballistic missile submarine, although that could be a process, depending on how likely you think it is, but I don't think it's very likely at all. It was more about the fact that their bases are very, very few. And so if you had a, in his mind, in his uh, perception, if you have a scenario 
that would be a concern for him at least. Um, on the other hand, we've just had a we've just had a Department of Defense report uh, submitted to Congress last year in May, in which they made a 10-year assessment on of the future of the Russian nuclear force structure um, and what their capabilities are. And in that report, they come out uh, in a resounding um, uh, uh, blue stamp, basically for the, the the ballistic missile submarine force. They say in the report that there is nothing that the Russians could do, even if they significantly increased their numbers of warheads in a breakout scenario from the New START Treaty, that would give them any military advantage um, that could uh, deprive the United States of its ability to respond with a significant retaliatory strike. Um, they use this to argue that the, the core function of strategic stability to the extent that nuclear forces can provide it is secured by the ballistic missile submarine force. I found that as a, it was a very strong worded uh, uh, report. Um, and, and it certainly uh, uh, speaks, I think, in my mind to the, to the confidence that they see in the current ballistic missile submarine force. Uh, with that, I'll stop and um, hopefully you have um, additional questions and I certainly have another notes here. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, as a moderator, I made the great uh, strategic error of handing over my watch, but they managed to uh, stick to their time limits without me uh, badgering them. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, I do have one question that I, I mainly want to direct to Bridge, but, but uh, wonder how others can, can weigh in on this. Um, because in your remarks, I picked up on um, maybe a difference that isn't as great as I think it is, but perhaps you, you think it's very significant. Because you say, yes, it's true, guilty is charged. We do believe the strategic environment is safe and stable. Uh, we say that not just in this study, we say that all the time, okay? Uh, we're having a conference, by the way, next week uh, back here, so you can right. all come in to that too. Um, and then you say that unlike many people who disagree with us that the current environment is safe and stable, you agree with us that it is not an especially dangerous time. And then you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, safer than at any time since World War I. Okay, so that's going back quite a ways, obviously. So what we're really talking about here is our and your confidence or lack thereof in the future, right? And I think, or I hope, that we address that in the paper in a couple different ways. One of which is to say that, first of all, the, the uh, capabilities that are provided by the SSBN force and a successor force, which would be a long-term uh, successor to the current Ohio class, again, 50, you say, you say think in terms of decades or half centuries, I think the SSBNX clearly would. Okay, take us into the middle of the next century, uh, or at least the end of this century, we should say, right? <clears throat> um, what we're really talking about here is our ability to adapt, react, shift course if the strategic environment turns considerably less safe and stable very quickly. Am I right? And, and how quickly does it have to change for me to change my mind and agree with you? Um, well, you know, great, great question, Chris. Uh, um, 
two two points. First of all, I agree that that, that you know, I, I think the the this, the environment, the strategic environment, security environment in the world for the United States in the last twenty five years over that course of time has, I think, I, I think it's hard to argue with it. It's it's much safer than it's been since since any time since since before nineteen fourteen. Um, but I, you know, as I said, what I worry about is, is the trend line. I worry about the I worry about the delicacy, the fragility of the current environment. And I do look out there and I see sort of latent problems. Some of them that are appear worsening, as as you may know. I I think the the rise of China. While I'm not a I don't consider myself a China basher, I, I see them as a very serious rival, and they're growing in power, which I think is going to have significant uh, implications for our posture in the Pacific. As I do think that we should maintain that sort of leadership role in the Pacific. I also see the proliferation of of advanced uh, military technologies that that could undercut our our um, our advantage, and that gets to the second point, which I, I just I think is important. Um, but before I address your, your your good question, which is that you know is the question of how much does our military strength and posture contribute to this peace and stability? And uh, this is again one of those questions that cannot be answered. But my uh, you know over, I have become more convinced that it that it that it may have a quite significant contribution. And so I think there, you know, if I may, I, I infer from your point, you're saying there's, it's sort of a low cost risk in the near term. You know, it's sort of a, uh, yeah, it's a sort of, ha- if we reduced, it would probably be sort of in a vacuum. That's not a fair way to put it, but, but that's kind of how I'm taking it. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm saying, well, I think actually if we did, if we did withdraw our military power and if we, t- if we dialed down the power on our military advantages, I would have very serious concerns about how the international environment would adapt to that. Now, to, to, so, so that's just to say that there's, there's two fundamental issues I have about the, the international security environment. Um, in terms of, you're, you're right, in terms of how, how much, if we could get rid of the, the two parts of the triad, I think there would be loss right now, but you know, it wouldn't be like the, the country would fold up shop. Correct. But I, I think my clear sense, and I'm not, I'm not a budgeteer, but my clear sense is that the cost of restarting the whole infrastructure um, later, which I think is a is a very decent, plausible you know probability in the sense that I think it's something that we would, in my expectation, we'd want to do at some later point, is much higher than than keeping the thing going, and that's not just in budgetary terms, but it's also in the in the kind of expertise, the culture that these organizations have had. I think you see that in the national labs, where you know whatever one thinks about the 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 utility of des, you know kind of active warhead design, a lot of the national labs have actually lost some capability. To do that kind of that kind of work, um, so that's you know my inclination is not just the let's be conservative now and stick with with what, with what works, but I'm also worried that if we kind of if we if we get rid of it, it's going to be hard, and also we might err. You know, we might we might not figure out how to do things right, and we kind of have a system that's that's adaptable. I mean, I'm not wedded to the exact way that it works now, obviously, but I think we have something that seems to be pretty effective. Okay. Um, and one other point uh, that I wanted to make, mainly in response to something that Han said, we, we do address in the paper, but I think it's fair to say we, we address it obliquely, is this question of signaling, okay? which has always been one of the key uh, selling points of the, especially the bombers. Um, and I think that uh, for, for me personally, I'm curious if Matt and Ben want to weigh in on this. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm struck by, well, first of all, I, I don't invest a lot of importance in signaling, especially in an overt sort of way. I think there are lots of ways to send signals about our capabilities. And again, back to Bridge's point, yes, it's true. Our posture does contribute to current peace. I wouldn't disagree with that argument, but it's not just our nuclear posture. We have lots of posture. Okay, We disagree with you in terms of how much it contributes. It's a factor. We agree with that. 
But in terms of signaling, I, I also, I think we, we should go back and look at some of the true selling propositions of submarines hmm. uh, that were made by the advocates of Polaris back in the late 1950s <laughs> at a time when that, when that platform was not uh, counterforce capable, hmm. was not hard target capable, was yes. not accurate enough, Absolutely. was not, had, didn't have the range. And there have been enormous improvements in terms of technology, both in terms of the accuracy and in terms of communication, since the late 1950s. But the real selling point about the submarines was that it didn't contribute to a costly arms race, arms uh, uh, build reaction cycle because they were not vulnerable to counterforce, precisely because of their invulnerability, their, their hiddenness, right? Um, and I, I, we did quote in the paper, we quote a few passages from... Uh, senior naval officers at the time making the case for putting the nuclear deterrent at sea for that reason. So I think to answer your question, Hans, and again, Matt and Ben weigh in on this, um, we think that the the benefits of of signaling, overt signaling, have been greatly exaggerated, and the benefits of the submarines as a a retaliatory uh, platform have been much ignored because much of the technological improvements that have occurred since the early 1960s have been ignored uh, in the force structure. Ben, do you want to add anything to that, or Matt, or Ben? Well, yeah, I mean, I have a response to that, and also um, just a a couple of the other points that Rich raised. Um, Let me say the the signaling bit first. There are a million ways to signal, and um, you can signal diplomatically, you can move troops, you can use forces, you can do things with submarines that signal the idea that you need to buy uh, ex- expensive platform in order to signal strikes me as a very perverse kind of economy. Um, I also disagree that signaling is particularly important. I fail to see a lot of examples, um, you know, it depends on definitions in international security history where we can point to some signal that seemed particularly important. I think it's it's overrated, but be that as it may, uh, you can signal in all sorts of ways uh, with uh, the force uh, we recommend. Moving, uh, moving to the other uh, point, um, I think Bridge picked up on a, on a failure of ours to be less than clear. Um, we do argue that um, geopolitics have changed and, and uh, we're more uh, safe than we used to be, and therefore uh, we need less uh, security of all sorts. But that is not necessary to the conclusion that we reach about uh, moving to Amanad. We say even the most hawkish policies do not require a triad, and we should have explained that more. Um, But that's because um, we, as Matt discussed, the um, counterforce capability, which we're for, uh, largely because you just can't get rid of it, um, in uh, our SLBMs is robust. It's highly impressive. So we're not going to move away from uh, counterforce capability, and we can't because we've had a precision revolution uh, using uh, surveillance platforms and vastly improved targeting from uh, GPS uh, in particular um, that creates this capability. Conventional weapons, as uh, were pointed out, uh, was pointed out in the Global Zero report, now have the capability, because of their accuracy, to destroy hardened missile silos. Um, so conventional weapons are a big part of this story. Um, so that's another set of options when you're talking about counterforce. That was not the case in the Cold War uh, because of accuracy um, restrictions. So uh, given that capability to go after all these hard targets and given the lack of targets among our current enemies, even if you want to expand the enemy set somewhat, 
this would be a pretty robust capability, uh, even um, if you don't believe our story about um, the world being safer than it used to be. Um, and that's partly why we discussed how the Soviet Union was that not a time of, of geopolitical tranquility, uh, was pretty well deterred uh, by uh, a set of capabilities that we don't think required uh, the whole triad. We think even conventional capability was quite robust then. It's more robust now, given U.S. advantages. So uh, the story about uh, the growing peacefulness of the world, that debate is one I'd love to have, because uh, I believe very strongly that the world is far safer, but um, it's not necessary to today's uh, conversation. We make this argument based primarily on uh, economy, based on uh, technological um, gains. Um, and, and on costs, um, a small point, uh, or maybe not that small, the, the uh, $20 billion, uh, in savings uh, is, we say, eventually you'd save that. So it's not really compared to the current $31 because it's obviously it's going to take time uh, to implement this. And so it's a rough estimate based on future uh, costs. And, and the... the um, I mean, I think we, we agree probably more uh, than it might have seemed because, yeah, I agree. I mean, if look, if I, if I agreed with you about the capabilities that we're getting rid of, uh, that they uh, have all these important attributes, then I wouldn't think they were prolificate. But, you know, the uh, lots of things seem like no money in a budget of $500 billion, right? And if you think that way, you never get rid of anything hardly because uh, it's so expensive. I mean, there's a few big items, but... Um, so, um, you know, I think we should economize uh, where we can, and, and the, the real argument is on uh, those capabilities we're getting rid of. Bridge, and then Hans, if you want to, yeah, go ahead. Great. Well, uh, no, very, very good, fair points. And uh, on the 20 billion, that's, that's, that's good to know. Um, sorry for, for misrepresenting that. Um, uh, a couple of things. On the, on the uh, SSBN allowing counterforce, it, it is true, but um, there are aspects of, sort of flexibility, discrimination, um, and certain kind of, you know, effects that you get from other parts of the triad that are not resident in the, um, in the submarine force. Now, obviously, maybe, maybe something you guys would think about would be, well, maybe there should be more uh, aspects of, uh, or maybe there should be more capabilities put on, these, on the submarine to the extent that it's technically possible to replace the, the functions that are currently performed by, in particular, the bomber leg of the triad. I mean, you know, I don't think we need to get too specific, but there are things that can be done by the bombers in particular that cannot be done uh, as currently constituted by the Air Force. And I think these are quite important. And I think that's another part of the issue is, you know, I, I've thought a lot about, you know, this sort of idea of kind of limited nuclear war and limited nuclear options and that kind of thing. And the ballistic missile, missile submarines, in my view, are unquestionably the, the, the cornerstone of our strategic posture and ultimately our national defense. But in practice, we all, not just in practice, but also in terms of any kind of strategic standoff, we want to have a variety of intermediate options uh, that, that would enable us credibly uh, you know, to, to, to threaten to do things to an adversary that he wouldn't like, short of a, of a crippling destru destruction. Now, there are things you can do with a ballistic missile force, unquestionably, that would satisfy that. But you are reducing your options if you get rid of the, particularly of the bomber leg. Uh, we can talk about some of the attributes but on that particular point. Also, I think, you know, you know, if you, if you want to take kind of Ben's scenario of like, let's take the hawkish point of view, um, you know, and I think Hans touched on this, uh, you know, I think there's a sanguinity, not just about the overall strategic environment, but also about the technological environment. I mean, it seems to me, I'm not an expert on the specifics of the technology, but it, you know, it seems to me that the ballistic missile submar submarine is, is pretty, is in pretty good shape, but I, I don't know. And I don't know what kind of, you know, transformative capabilities in, in reconnaissance or in processing information 
you know, open ocean kind of things uh, are, are possible. And, you know, I mean, not to quibble, but you guys say that at the end of the Cold War, they found that the, that the Soviets were way behind. That's true, you know, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be true in the future. And it turns out, I think, that the Soviets for a long time, as I understand it, had not dedicated the resources very intelligently to, to, to tackling that problem. So, I mean, pass is not necessarily prologue and people, especially if they know that that's the single point of failure for us, there's going to be a lot more of an incentive to do something about it. You know, and just another, I mean, we could, we could go on about this, but just in terms of the, the sort of the signaling issue, yes, signaling can be grossly exaggerated and reassurance efforts can be grossly exaggerated. However, if you look historically for deployed forces, for instance, namely bombers, generally speaking, uh, although, you know, ground-based missiles have been a big part of our, you know, political strategy. It's part of our political context, and these are political weapons. So, you know, the Pershings and the Glickums uh, and, our, you know, the F-16s uh, and I think F-15s that are used in Europe, these are useful tools for policymakers. Would we buy them alone uh, for that purpose? Almost certainly not, but, but we're not buying anything alone. We're not buying a future bomber alone. We're buying a future bomber and then going to make it nuclear certified and buy the appropriate weapons for it. So I think we need to keep that in mind. Um, and that, you know, sort of gets at this, like, we got to think about this in terms of the cost. Again, I would be willing to pay more for this. But, and to be fair, I think you're absolutely right, Ben, that, that we need to be serious about in a huge budget if every little part of the, the budget gets, oh, well, we should, it's not that much. I agree. Look, I think we should cut, I think we should cut a lot of our, you know, forces dedicated to like counterinsurgency and stability operations. I mean, to me, the strategy for the United States is, you know, maybe you guys are right, but maybe it's worse. Whatever happens it's probably a safe bet for us to be the strongest and particularly for us to dominate the high end of the, of the, of the military environment. So why are we spending money on huge ground forces and you know, the, the, the labor tail and the base tail? You know, you know, I, I mean, we should keep a few you know, tanks around and I, I haven't thought through all these specifics too much, but like, I don't think a, a huge infantry battle a la the full the gap is likely, you know, is plausible. Um, you know, so again, I'm willing to take some risk there, but I think we would benefit by being the, the, the power that has the most sophisticated, most diversified, most flexible, most advanced, way ahead, high-end set of military capabilities, and the cornerstone of that is a nuclear. Quickly, do you want to add um, yeah, I just want to say, um, just to pick up on that last note and try to weave in something that was said before, uh, to be the strongest, uh, of course, um, you know, any guy wants that, uh, but <laughs> the question is, as a country, um, <laughs> how do you determine um, what it is to be the strongest? I mean, in the case of nuclear weapons, we need, we need not the most weapon or the same that the others have or whatever necessarily. We need the kind of weapons for the kind of missions that we have determined are necessary for our national security. And if that turns out to be something very different, then that's great. And so I think one has to be careful about monitoring off the Chinese and the Russians and see what they do, et cetera, or compare for that matter to our own shadow from the Cold War. Um, but think clearly about, um, you know, where, where we're heading. Um, and, and of course, you can't do much with nukes. This is one of the problems. Um, um, you, can, you can say that you have them and, and gee, that would be terrible if they were used and aren't we credible and look, we can all do all this, but you can't actually use them, uh, at least not in the world we live in today. Um, we're hope that, we hope that never be the case. I and mean, there is one real problem about this. We see it in Europe right now, I think, where, where there are some uh, members of the European countries, uh, NATO countries, that are sort of clinging to the value of nukes in Europe because not that they're particularly militarily useful, but just as a symbol. Um, 
And that's somewhat of a, of, of a dilemma for them because we want to use our military forces uh, to uh, provide assurance, and they want assurance, but in a way, the nukes in Europe are the least credible form of reassurance because they're the least likely to ever be used in the type of security scenarios that those countries are facing in the world we can predict. So we're not doing them a favor, uh, it seems to me. And that's an example of where if you get hooked too much on how it used to be, and these are hypothetical scenarios, et cetera, et cetera, you can end up having fake reassurance, which I think is about what we're creating in Europe right now. Okay, very good. Um, we have a little bit of time for questions. Uh, the rules here are uh, pretty familiar. That is, uh, the Jeopardy rule applies. Uh, please keep your question in the form of a question. Uh, please wait for the microphone and identify yourself uh, when called on. And uh, back there, sir. Hugh Gustafson, George Mason University. Susan? Yes, go ahead, sir. Um, I noticed that it was taken for granted that nuclear weapons keep us safer, that the uh, safety problems of nuclear weapons weren't addressed, despite Eric Schlosser's uh, new book, Command and Control, that's been provoking quite a lot of discussion. Uh, he makes the case there that uh, American nuclear weapons may have come closer to destroying American cities than Russian cities. <laughs> he talks in particular about an incident in Arkansas where a Titan missile blew up, and one in uh, South Carolina where two hydrogen bombs were dropped accidentally and one of them, all but one uh, safety device, failed. Right. Uh, at a recent talk at the New America Foundation, Schlosser himself said that the uh, weapon in the stockpile that most worries him is the Trident II. Uh, it has uh, sensitive, not insensitive, high explosive. It has highly flammable uh, rocket propellant, and the rocket propellant is wrapped around the warhead where it would be most likely to create an accidental nuclear detonation. So the question so is, from was, a safety perspective... If, if were his choice, answer. he would retire that leg of the Trident, okay. of the, the Triad first. Uh, he says the submarine-launched uh, deterrent is most likely to kill Americans. How do you respond to that? Okay. Matt, you want to take that? Sure. Uh, well, I, have, I haven't read his book yet, but uh, I, I am familiar. I know the National Security Archive uh, just put out uh, some of the documents from it, I believe. Um, uh, I mean, safety is a concern. There's no doubt about that, I think, with, uh, with anything involving nuclear weapons. Uh, and, you know, Scott Sagan has been writing on this for years, and mm -hmm. it's done very good work. Um, again, it comes down to um, the insurance policy, as uh, both Ben and, uh, and Mr. Colby uh, both mentioned. And I think that we've come to the conclusion that they still are valuable as an as a, as a insurance policy there. Um, and I think that it, you have to weigh the safety concerns uh, against that. And you also have to weigh what is going to be the most um, uh, secure option from an international security uh, point of view, too, versus those safety uh, concerns. And it, it, the, the, uh, the Trident SLBM still comes down as the most uh, uh, viable option in that right. uh, situation. Point out also that while that may be true about the Trident, we are, of course— currently engaged in a, you know, uh, a process to replace the Ohio class with a successor. And so perhaps some of those secure, some of those particular safety concerns will or should be addressed. You're shaking your head. You're sure that's not the case? Well, again, why is that, why is that assumed to be the case going forward? Go ahead, Hans. Well, I just want to say that, um, I mean, the new submarine is going to carry the, the same D5 with the same warheads on it. Um, and they will retain the insensitive high explosive, at least in the current plan. However, if they get approval to go in and do right. uh, more 
complex interoperable warhead uh, modifications, then there are people who want to replace the insensitive high explosive. Yeah, but, but, but can I just say, but I think one of the things that happened when the Navy realized that they had that problem with the ballistic missile submarines, um, the, the problem occurred specifically in the often unloading of uh, the, the warhead bus uh, on the ballistic missiles when it goes into uh, the Trident refit facility. And um, at some point, they would load the whole missile uh, with the bus on top of it and the warheads, but they realized which is a huge risk. And so they changed the, uh, the operations, so you don't do that anymore. Um, that reduced the risks, not necessarily 100%, and I don't think it's necessarily good enough, but the point is just that in the way we posture our forces, you have inherent risks. You can choose to deploy your forces in such a way um, or that way, and thereby change the, the risk. Um, if you continue to have a requirement that we have to have nuclear weapons deployed on forces, ready to go on, on, on high alert, you create a higher risk uh, because the weapons are there on top of missiles with, uh, with their fuel, et cetera. Um, if you change that posture, you can reduce the risk as well without changing the warhead, eliminate, uh, the warhead uh, uh, chemical explosives. So that's another way of doing it. Uh, I had a question right there. Uh, yes, sir, right there. <clears throat> Wayne. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Wayne Mary, the American Foreign Policy Council. I certainly recognize that even in the Cold War, most nuclear weapons uh, reductions were unilateral on both sides, not reciprocal, and very few of them actually treaty-based. But your discussion today is extraordinarily unilateral, uh, almost no reference to any other nuclear weapon states at all. And I'm wondering to what extent you do see any action-reaction uh, component of this. I mean, other than the fact the United States would be much more NPT-compliant under your proposal. But, for example, early this year, I wrote a paper for American Foreign Policy Council about Russian attitudes towards nuclear weapons, in which I posited that the Russians are about as low as they believe they can go. And that has much less to do with actual military posture than it has to do with really political strategic culture, something which can be argued about. But if you assume, as I do, that the Russian nuclear force, from their perception of their own great power status, uh, is not subject to the kind of radical transformations you're proposing for ours. What kind of responses do you see, not just from Russians, but potentially from other nuclear weapons states, for, from your proposal? Because in the nature of the world we live in, anytime the Americans do something, let alone something big and dramatic, it provokes responses. And what kind of responses are you presuming your proposal will provoke? We're not. But Ben, you want to... You <laughs> yeah, well, actually, that gets to something that came up before, which is, uh, uh, I think Bridge said that you know, we don't think there are any benefits to what we propose aside from um, cost savings. Uh, that's not completely true. Uh, we do think that um, our arsenal, like other arsenals and military forces overseas, drives um, some degree of proliferation and drives countries that already have nukes to develop more and develop different uh, capabilities. It's not my view that the Iranians or the North Koreans would um, give up whatever programs they have uh, just because uh, the United States goes to uh, Amman ad, but I think it would contribute uh, to uh, their decision making. So I think that would be uh, one set of conclusions. Generally, I think the um, relationship between uh, the United States uh, and Russia is less linked, of course, uh, militarily than it used to be. But um, the main reason I think they, I, I think that they would make reductions 
is less because of a treaty than because of what our force looks like and what it's designed to do. I think that um, threat, or lack thereof, is what uh, primarily drives uh, their uh, decisions uh, on that, aside from funds available and so forth. Um, so um, I think that's um, the main. Oh, I, I was going to say, um, I'm happy to have a treaty with the with the uh, Russians uh, as a result of the cuts we propose or something else. I think you know that's that sort of would be uh, icing on the cake, right? I, I wouldn't preclude that. But on the other hand, I don't think we should need their permission forever to give the U.S. taxpayers a break. So um, ultimately, uh, if they don't want to go along, I would do this without them moving an inch. I just want to comment on that and the uh, uh, the achievements or the objectives of why go to them on it um, beyond the cost savings, of course. Um, it would significantly change or require change in U.S. strategy, it seems to me, because of the fact that the ICBM force is uh, such a primary alert force um, uh, ready to go uh, in four minutes if we need to. Um, and that particular posture is emphasized um, a lot by officials, Again, I, whether they're right or wrong, but that's, that's a fact. So, so that in and of itself would, uh, I think, significantly change uh, the way we talk about what the U.S. nuclear strategy is and what types of capabilities and scenarios are needed to have forces ready to do. Um, so there is, there is, a, there is a, an area there that, that I think uh, is worthwhile looking at. Right here in front. Thank you. Michael Bruno with Aviation Week and Space Technology. You all are making wonderful arguments for proactive decision-making, but our political system doesn't seem to allow that kind of thing these days. Uh, and I'm curious, without getting too political, can you comment on how you see sequestration, automatic, across-the-board kind of cuts as a way of making decision-making, either good or bad, in regards to the nuclear complex? Well, ben, this is you. Yeah, very quickly, um, the paper discusses this. Um, the, our argument is that the budgetary uh, benefits and military use of nukes to the military services, so in a direct sense of using them in war, but also bureaucratically, have declined because uh, they're not uh, that big a portion of their budgets, the services, the Navy and the Air Force's budget, A, but I think... A cause of that is the fact that they're not used uh, in the wars that we actually fight. So um, we simply say in the paper, as a matter of fact, you know, we can talk about all the different uses of nukes, but in the wars we actually fight, which tend lately at least to be against weak states that don't have nukes, these are of uh, no value. Nuke, our nukes are of no value because um, nuking a bunch of people in a country that doesn't threaten the survival of the United States, which is a description of every enemy we've had in the last few decades is simply not morally acceptable to most people in the United States. So nobody even thinks of that as an option, Afghanistan or Iraq or uh, Kosovo. Um, so that's, you know, they're, they're not useful. And because they're not useful and we don't spend a lot of money on them, um, the military services uh, don't, aren't, particularly the Air Force, are not necessarily in love with all the capabilities. The Air Force used to be run by bomber pilots. Long ago, fighter pilots took over. I don't think the fighter pilots care that deeply about whether or not the next bomber has a, a nuclear weapons capability. I think a lot of them actually might prefer to get rid of it insofar as under sequestration it, uh, and budget caps in general, it puts pressure 
on the things they really want. So what you get, I think, as a result of austerity is intrust service competition within uh, the services for resources that make nukes less popular in the Navy, you know, is about to blow up if we don't get the, uh, the next uh, boomer program to be national like the Navy wants, which almost certainly is not going to happen, the, uh, they got to blow up their shipbuilding budget. Nobody knows how they're going to pay for it, including the Navy, I think. So, um, so that, there is some pressure on, on the sub. Go ahead, Bridget. Yeah, it's just one argument that I was a little mystified by because, you know, I, I agree with some of your guys' points over the years about, about the inadvisability of some of these interventions. So just from a kind of political perspective, <laughs> wouldn't it be better that we spend this money on, on capabilities yeah, on that are useful. That are never used. Yeah, they're right. strategic deterrent, you know, and that maybe are, are like too much, but that won't incline people to say, oh, here's another like, you know, you know, garden spot in the Middle East or East Africa that we can get involved in. Yeah, if it's that or this, yeah, I'm with you. In, a separate, okay. yeah, we don't, in, in a separate paper that, that Ben and I wrote, we uh, argued for cutting the conventional forces, as you would, for the reasons that you would. Well, it's we some conventional forces. Right, yeah, some right, of the conventional right, forces yeah. for the reasons yeah, that yeah. you would, but we also talk about going from a triad to dyad. And this is a paper we published back three years ago. Uh, last question right there. Yes, sir, you've been very patient. I have uh, time for one more question. Make it good. Hi, my name is Dennis Nelson, uh, with Sir, And I have a question about cost, uh, and not just cost in terms of uh, dollars, but also cost in terms of potential contamination. Uh, environmental contamination. Uh, how, in the event of a nuclear exchange, what level of ex, ex, escalation will we be willing to accept, and how much contamination of our of our country will we accept? I mean, we already realized that in uh, Fukushima, for example, there's uh, 150,000 people that can't go back, uh, and in a in a, a major exchange where you had thousands and thousands of, uh, of weapons detonated, our whole continent would be uninhabitable. So shouldn't we base this on, you know, our deterrence on the basis of what we can tolerate, not on the basis of, uh, of how safe we are? I, I think a lot of your question hinges on the kind of the whole question of credibility and how likely are you to, uh, to be deterred by the fear of that sort of retaliation. Now, one of, the one of the criticisms of minimal deterrence over the years has been that while we, the United States, we Americans would uh, uh, deal with, you know, the contamination that threatens the lives of 10% of our population differently than Mao Zedong or, or Joseph Stalin would have dealt with the contamination of, that threatens the lives of 25 or 50% of their population. Um, I don't know that that's true, but I still believe that the ability to credibly threaten the lives of tens of millions of people, whether it's in the United States or in Russia or in China or pick your place, is what makes nuclear deterrence more credible than conventional deterrence. Um, and, and I think one of the other questions we, we touch on in the paper is that when so much of the, the uh, damage estimates of the, of the 60s, they focused on the actual blast effects. They didn't focus on the fire effects. They didn't focus on the, on the radiation effects and the, and the long-term radiation effects. And you have to take that into consideration. What it means is that it makes the prospect of a nuclear exchange even more horrific than if you focused solely 
on the effects of, that are uh, visited on the counterforce targets, the, the individual weapons that you're, that you're targeting. Do you, is that right? I mean, that, I would just say there's a lot of good reasons not to fight a nuclear war. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, yeah, see, there are lots of good reasons to not fight a nuclear war. We all agree on that. Um, okay, um, thank you all very much. Thanks to the panelists uh, for their remarks. Uh, please join us uh, on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Uh, it is out the hallway and up the stairs, and the folks outside will show you the way. Please join us for continued conversation upstairs. Thank you all very much. All right.